Again, it's a joy to, to have those sounds, the, the pitter-pattering, which sounds sometimes like thumping. <laughs> we love that around here. So if you're new to Clayton Valley Church, just know this is, uh, this is not the place where kids are seen and not heard. Uh, we are grateful to the Lord for, uh, for blessing us in that way. And, uh, and yes, with the Splendoria's little girl now, all of you who have little boys, you can now work out uh, the dowry stuff in advance. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, get those things just, you know, connected and signed quickly. Um, I'm not sure if you heard about this or not, but there was a, there was a, a guy who it w- was suing the, the restaurant chain Popeye's. And he was uh, suing Popeye's Louisiana kitchen after they ran out of a very popular uh, chicken sandwich. And look, I'm, I'm a big chicken sandwich fan, if you don't know me. So I kind of get it. I kind of get it. But what happened was he, he, go, he took them to court for false advertising and deceptive business practices by entity to public. And because this, this sandwich was so popular, it was kind of like a social media frenzy, you know, just the word got out. And there was no way for the Popeye's officials to, you know, make sure they had enough sandwiches in the supply chain, right? So they ran out. And, uh, and, and so his, uh, <laughs> his, his lawsuit includes several, several things. Uh, he, he says... Uh, that it exacerbated his mental and emotional distress. Uh, he said, quote, I can't get happy. I have this sandwich on my mind and I can't think straight. It just consumes you. And, uh, and, and, and in the filing, he also includes the phrase countless time wasted as a part of the grievance. But here's the thing. I don't know if he gets this. Uh, by filing this lawsuit, the time you're wasting to bring that about and put that forward and try to win is way more time than you spent being aggravated about this, this chicken sandwich. And, and, and the truth is, we're, we're kind of used to this, aren't we, in this day? I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of used to this nonsense. Uh, it's almost like, how do Americans solve their problems they sue each other. That's just how they do it. And you've got, of course, all those ads on TV, right, of the various lawyers. Even if you're visiting different places, I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's different lawyers on in those regions, and they've got kind of like their ad, and, you know, I'll go to court for you, and I'll get you your, your win, your money, and all that. And, and here's the thing. It's, it's one thing to see that out in the world, but it's tragic to see that happening within the household of God. And... Uh, as we continue through 1 Corinthians and we find ourselves in chapter 6, we see that Paul is going to confront the Corinthian church on a lot of different things. Um, and again, a note, note to parents, if you've got young kids in here and uh, if, we're going to be talking about some things that we respect parents. You, know, you might want to talk with this about your young person or with your young person, you might not. So just feel free to, to step out if you need to. Um, but, but this is a, a place where Paul's going to be confronting them on, on sort of the irony of their situation because here they've claimed to have all wisdom and knowledge. They've taken pride in their gifts and yet they're showing an incredible lack of judgment. They're showing a lack of judgment in a judgmental way. They're, they have pride over preferences. It's destroying their unity. Their, their arrogance is actually highlighting their ignorance about what God really cares about. And so rather than exercising wisdom and concern for one another, they are bent on getting what they want out of each conflict. And so what they're doing is they're bringing lawsuits against one another in secular court. 
So go ahead, if you would, and, and open or turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, in honor of God's word, let's stand together and go ahead and follow along as I read. First Corinthians chapter six, beginning with verse one. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not one among you who is wise enough to be able to decide between his brothers, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather... Be defrauded. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray and ask in this time that you yourself would work among us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has penned these words and we now ask that he would take these words and transform us that he would, would, would work in our lives in such a way that we would become those who follow you with our whole hearts and those who take the problems of our times and our lives and, and, and seek to resolve them in ways that honor you. We pray that all that we do would reflect the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we ask that as we do so, the world around us would know that we're your followers because of our love for one another. We ask these things in the name of our risen King, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as Paul uh, confronts the Corinthian church, he actually uses a recurring phrase. You might have noticed it when we read through the passage. Do you not know? So he's, he's saying things to them and he's saying, hey, there's some things that you actually ought to know. You ought to be aware of them. And so that's kind of the hinge that this entire passage sort of rests on, is that repeated phrase. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this passage in light of that. And we're looking at it with this kind of idea. Do you not know your status as, sta- as saints means, number one, you will judge the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I heard that, I'm going, huh? What's he talking about? Like, what what does that mean? We're going to judge the world. And and what Paul is saying here, he's he's really referring to what uh, everyone in Corinth was was kind of familiar with. The the idea of judging happened there all the time. Why? Well, because people would be in conflict with each other 
And they actually had a very specific place to go to deal with those conflicts. So if you're in Corinth today, you can go up on top of the hill and, uh, and, and kind of look out from the, the vantage point of uh, the, the, the kind of the, the elevated uh, city center. But then down around, um, you know, looking back up at that area, you would see this thing. And this was, this was the, the place of, of, of judgment. Um, it's the Bema at Corinth. And, and Bema means or refers to uh, the tribunal from which judgment and other official public business was conducted. And so uh, that would be the place it happens. And you can still go there to this day and see it there in Corinth. And so everyone who's hearing Paul goes, oh, yeah, there it is. That's, that's, that's how we deal with things. And you can kind of see how the culture around the church in Corinth was, was bleeding into the church and influencing them and causing them to act uh, in the same way as the world. And so there's this way in which, uh, you know, even, even the courts there, they, they probably weren't the most straightforward courts. The, Corinth was a place that there were different people of different uh, status levels, different amount of influence, different amount of wealth. And so they would take their influence and wealth and oftentimes they would purchase the outcome that would happen in court. Uh, and so, and so at, at that point, you can see how the influence and, and the, the ways of, of being prominent within the church at Corinth was sort of something that people would grab onto and say, that's what I want to utilize to, to resolve things. This is how I deal with things. And so Paul is saying, this is just strange. Why would you go to this very temporary earthly court when, in fact, you are going to be the ones who are judges in the age to come? And, and, and you might think, well, where does the Bible talk about that? Well, well, actually, it's interesting. Back in Daniel chapter 7, there's a verse that says this, until the ancient of days, that's referring to the Messiah. This is written about 600 BC or so before Jesus came. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, this is referring to the millennial kingdom that's coming. Revelation talks about this as well. Uh, there's a lot of connections between the prophets of the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and the way the end times are, are depicted. But we would see here that there is a, a sense in which, wait a minute, so the, the people of God are, are given in, in their relationship with the Messiah this role of judging. And, uh, you know, Paul referred to this earlier too. You might remember back in chapter 4, verse 5, when he said to them, hey, it's a small thing for you to judge me, Corinthian church. I don't even judge myself, but the one who judges me is the Lord. And then he says, so stop passing judgment before the time. When's the time? The day of the Lord, when he's returning. And so now he's describing more for them that, that there's a a role that believers will have in that season. And we find this in other places in the New Testament as well. Jesus promises the disciples that they're going to sit on thrones with him and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That's in Matthew 19. Uh, Revelation 24 speaks of those who are given authority to judge being seated on thrones. Those who are raised with Christ, we're told, will reign with him. And so, uh, as believers suffer now, many things, and they share in Christ's sufferings, also were promised that in glory, we will share in his glory. 
So how does all that work exactly? I don't know. <laughs> I think we have these images, these pictures. We can talk about what, what's revealed to us. You know, we're told that the secret things belong to God. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. That's what the Bible would say. So what we know is that those who are believers will participate with Christ in, in, in this time of ruling and judging. And if that's not enough, Paul then even goes on. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Okay, now you're going, wait, Paul, what? You know, it's kind of like it's crescendoing here. Really? Like, what do you mean? And uh, again, it's very likely that, that uh, Paul is, is describing saints ruling with Christ. And as Christ engages in that end time judgment of the angels themselves, we are with him, participating with him in that. But you can see his argument, can't you? He's certainly arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, Corinthian church, you who have all wisdom, as you've said, you've proclaimed it repeatedly. You who are so proud of the gifts that you've been given. Do you not realize you will be with Christ in judgment over the world and over angels? And if that's the case, why? Why? Why would you ever take a disagreement you would have with a brother and sister and bring that before secular courts? He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. He's saying you should be embarrassed because you are not grasping who you actually are. You're not grasping what I've done or what Christ has done for you and who you are in him and your, your, your status and your future. You're not seeing that. Your status means you're going to judge the world and angels. And all of this is tied up in, even the, the Daniel 7 passage is all tied up in the victory of Christ. He's saying, you're you're going to judge the world and angels because you've already won. You have already won. And so he goes on. Do you not know that your status as saints means you will judge the world? But, But it also means this. Your status as saints means when you take a brother or sister to court, You've already lost. He's saying before you've even set foot in the door, you've already lost. Why is that? Well, because you're not seeing your foundation. You're not seeing your new status that requires that you walk in a different way. You're not seeing your future clearly and who you're going to be serving with Christ, ruling with Christ. And so instead, you're taking the name of Jesus and the one way that the world around us knows that we're his followers. What is it? They will know you're my disciples as you sue each other to smithereens. No. They will know You're my followers, my disciples, because of your love for one another. That's how they're going to know. 
And so that means we don't ever, ever take a brother or sister to court. We do not engage in secular legal uh, encounters with them. Because we want to preserve the testimony of Christ in, in, to all those who know us. It's hard to do that, isn't it? It can be. Especially if we feel like we've been really wronged. Especially if we feel like there's almost no other recourse at all. But that's what Paul says in verse 7. It's already a defeat for you to have lawsuits with one another. And then, and then he asks some probing questions. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? If you're in a situation like this right now, and maybe you are, maybe you're saying, hey, Chris, you don't understand what they're doing to me. This is painful. This has to do with my livelihood. This has to do with how I can care for my family. This has to do with with really me being able to, to, to um, be responsible in some ways with maybe it's a business situation, maybe it's with your home. I recall a situation many, many years ago and uh, someone had hired, this is back in LA, so not, not our church, totally different church, totally different place, but someone, someone had hired a contractor to do uh, some work on, on, on their home. And the contractor was, was a brother at the church, and, and as she hired this person, she thought, hey, things are going to go great. You know, because, hey, this is a believer. And so things are going to be working out really well. Two things happened in the midst of the process. By the way, the front of her house was gone. Okay, you know how, like, when you're doing work and you're building on a thing, so there's that moment in between where it's not the new thing and it's not the old thing. It's just that's where they were at. So essentially the front of the house was plastic, having been ripped off. Parts of the back of the house were off as well because they had opened up the back to expand outwards. And um, the costs had continued to escalate through the project. So the costs had gone up and had gone up and had gone up. And uh, because of that... The homeowner, her budgeting got out of whack. She didn't anticipate those things. At the same time, the contractor was using money from this project to fund a different project. He was kind of stacking it. And the end result was, from the homeowner's side, they'd run out of money. And from the contractor's side, he had misspent the money. And now they were staring at each other going, why did you do this to me? The temptation to go to court was immense on both sides. And I've known of other situations where they ended up in court anyway. But I have to say, in this situation, praise God, they both put on the brakes. They were both, so church leadership came to each of them because the problem was asked to come into the situation. Both sat down at the table, and it was painful. 
It was hard. But they both restrained themselves from going to court, and they were both actually able to honor the Lord with each next decision. And it wasn't easy. The outcome wasn't, wasn't fun for either of them. But you know what happened? People who heard about it, people who knew about it, they saw the love of Jesus in action in that moment. I wasn't in on all those meetings. I was in on a few of them. But I can tell you the ones I was in on, from the contractor's side, there was some absolute furious anger. And from the homeowner's side, there was a lot of tears because a lot of dreams had to be released. It was ugly. And you know what else it was? Beautiful. Because it was completely different than the way the world would approach the situation. And thankfully, their testimonies were intact. And thankfully, they've both been able to move on since then and walk with the Lord and honor him with their lives. But this is a very difficult area because for each of us, it deals with things that are very, very personal, important. It has to do with with oftentimes matters of of, uh, great cost. And so it seems that uh, when we compromise in this area, Though the temptation is very easy, the results are very, very destructive because the world looks on. The world looks on and goes, see, those Christians, they're no different than anybody else. Why should I believe what their quote-unquote Savior says? They don't believe it. When we refuse to go through that process, in many ways, I think a lot of times we are trying to avoid suffering. And, and we're told, you know, Jesus says that I suffered, and by the way, Jesus suffered unjustly, and he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself, you're going to take up your cross, and you're going to follow me. And that will entail Suffering. Now, it's not that we go out there and go, hey, I want to find something that's really, really painful because I know it's God's will for me. And just and that's not the point. The point is, when you are in the process of life and living it and walking by his light and walking with him in that light, there are going to be things that encounter or, or overtake your life or that you run into that will be temptations to avoid pain and suffering. And instead of that being the criteria, it needs to be, Lord, help me to follow you. And if it means suffering, be glorified in it. When we refuse that, one person kind of made it similar to an autoimmune disease. You know what an autoimmune disease is, right? It's when your body, your immune system actually attacks healthy cells in your body. And there's all, all, all kinds of those But in some ways, this is the human body biting and devouring healthy cells and destroying life. And and in this case, the Corinthian church, they were biting and devouring one another with a desire to not suffer, to get their way, to grab after that which they wanted at all costs. So what do we do about that? Well, again, Paul's asking that question. Do you not know your status as saints means, first, you're going to judge the world. Secondly, when you take a brother or sister to court, you've already lost. And lastly, 
Your status as saints means you must remember your new status in Christ. You've got to remember. You must remember. Be wronged. Be defrauded. That's better than going to court where you've already lost before you started. And so Paul backs out a little bit here and he kind of brings an overarching picture Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's drawing a contrast here. He's saying, remember who you are in Christ. And by doing so, first, remember who you were before. You were non-heirs. And that's a warning. Notice he's warning against deception. He says in the next phrase in verse 9, do not be deceived. It's easy for us to be self-deceived. It's easy for us to, to... to think that, you know, saving grace is all I need and, and, you know, in terms of I don't have any response to that. How I live my life is not an issue at all. And, and thankfully, in terms of our standing before God, we do not contribute anything at all. Our justification is from Him alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yet what we would find also is that saving faith, as the reformer Martin Luther said, saving faith is never alone. There's change that comes about in our lives over time. And and so Paul lists those ways of life that we need to understand are completely incompatible with those who are heirs of the kingdom of God. And, And this list is not meant to be exhaustive. This list, without question, would be well known to those within the Corinthian community. And it describes someone whose life does not reflect a, a, a citizenship or being an heir of God's kingdom. And the list is fascinating in a lot of ways because some of the things in this list, we'll look at that, we'll go, well, yeah, of course. And you know what? Other things in the list, as 21st century Christians, we're going to probably be going, oh, okay. Probably won't strike us as being all that bad. And so, Paul's list here does a couple things for us. It helps us to see the nature of sin and the nature of uh, getting caught up in a, in a life that does not reflect who we are in Christ. But it also protects us from categorizing things and making some of them the apex of all sin or making other things not that big of a deal. So notice, notice the list he gives. Don't be deceived. If the unbroken pattern of your life is, as he describes it here, you're not an heir of the kingdom, he's saying. So don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. What's he talking about there? He's talking about sexual sin. Uh, A fornicator would be someone who's unmarried, who's uh, having sexual relations with another person outside the bonds of marriage. An idolater, that would be someone who worships something other than God, technically. But also in Corinth in the first century, there were many temples and many forms of idolatry that actually did include uh, sexual activity. Uh, We've mentioned that several weeks ago. Um, there There were temple prostitutes that would go out into the city of Corinth in the evenings for the purpose of luring people in. And then there's adulterers. That would be someone who is married engaging in sexual activity with someone who's not their spouse. So Paul's saying here, if this is your life pattern, 
you need to make sure you're not deceived. Don't pretend everything's okay with you and God if that's what you're doing. Um, And then he goes on. He says, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals. Those two Greek words are actually describing uh, with, with detail the passive and active activity of, of, of homosexuals gathering for sex. So the homosexual act, there's an active and a passive partner in that, and those two words are denoting those two things. Um, and then he goes on to describe thieves and coveting and drunkards. We should uh, stop, pause for a moment just to take note on the area of, of homosexuality. Here at our church, at Clayton Valley Church, we um, really, really strive to make sure we are not um, one of two unhelpful types of churches with this area of, of, of homosexuality. Uh, on the one side, we believe it's not helpful for a church to be going like this with the entire homosexual uh, lifestyle behavior. Hey, way to go. Way to exert your freedom. High five. You know, live out your life in that way. Uh, that is something we would say would be contrary to Scripture. Okay? On the other side, we're not the church that says, your kind aren't welcome around here. Because that is also not helpful, nor is it a gospel approach. Instead, we say, you are welcome here. We are glad you're here. We are glad you're joining us. And at the same time, we're going to say the Bible describes that life as sinful. But we call all sinners to repent. I mean, we're so uh, desirous to make sure we're clear what the Bible says. We actually think two heterosexual people who are unmarried and together in a sexual relationship are in sin. And so we want to be really clear with that. And we say, come and, and, and gather with us as we all grow to repent more and more. We all need to repent. And that's why I find the rest of Paul's list here very fascinating. Because look, he's, he's going right along. These are all the things that reflect the life of someone who is not an heir of the kingdom. And notice the next thing, thieves. Okay. Well, someone who's a thief, you know, we get that. That makes sense, right? If someone steals something, if that's the pattern of their life, you know, you're not going to be someone who's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a hacker, and I go into companies' kind of web infrastructure. You technical guys are going, what are you talking about? I don't know exactly, okay? But the hackers that go in, and, and what they do uh, is they, you know, maybe do some ransomware thing, right? They hold, they hold a company ransom. And maybe one of them comes to Christ and says, okay, well, great, you know, uh, now I'm a Christian who goes into companies and hacks them and holds their stuff ransom. I'm like, no, that's not compatible. Obvi- that's pretty obvious to us, isn't it? But now look at the next thing. Nor the covetous. Huh. What's that? Okay, that's like before the thieving part. Okay, that's, that's the attitude that leads to thieving. That's the looking at what somebody else has and saying... Oh, I want that. I want that. Why do they have that? Fill in the blank. You know, car, house, spouse, school, family situation, whatever it is. 
really as serious a sin as thieving? Yeah, it is. Huh. Do we treat it that way? I don't think so. The list goes on. Drunkards, revilers. Again, the the Bible here very clearly says that if the pattern of your life is abusing alcohol to the point of being drunk, again, the Bible does not condemn um, the partaking of alcohol at all, but it does condemn drunkenness. If that's the pattern of your life, that's a serious issue and you need to deal with that before God. Revilers, those would be people who are just trying to stir up strife. They're like strife addicts. You know, some people are, are, no, I don't want that. And these people are like, yeah, maybe we can get them into a fight. You know, sadly, uh, many, many years ago, someone would, you know, our congregational meetings are not like that anymore, but someone would joke with me and say, yeah, I love congregational meetings, man. I just love watching the, the rock'em, sock'em robots come out. Yeah, let's do it. It's like a sport. And then I was like, uh, so how do you think Jesus feels about that happening amongst his people? They look at me like, just shut up, okay? I'm like, okay, sorry. Just ruined congregational meetings for you, you know? Thankfully, the, our congregational meetings are in a very different place. But these people like a fight. They love it. They live for it because they like to win them. And then swindlers. Swindlers would be the idea of someone who's grasping for something or grabbing something that's not there and manipulating people to accomplish that. You might ask the question, why would Paul go from taking a brother or sister to court in one moment and now move right into this list of sins? How are those? It seems like they should be two separate sections, but they're really not. They're actually connected here. And the question is, why? What's going on? And and I think I think what happens is when you look at both sections together, there's a thread that goes through them, a thread that connects them. And that thread is this. All of them are dealing with issues of grasping after something that's not to be yours. So you think about it. Why do you take someone to court in that way? I want this and I want it now. Why do you engage in fornication, idolatry, or adultery because I want this thing and it's not mine, but I'm going to grab it. Engaging in the homosexual lifestyle, same thing. I want and I'm going to grab after this thing. Uh, reviling, swindling, coveting, thieving. Again, there's all this idea of grasping after things. And so because of that, we would see that this entire section, Paul's saying, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, you're going to live your life grasping after all these other things that aren't yours. Not only that, in Christ, you have more than you could ever want. But you don't see it. If you're married... Think about how your life goes with your spouse. And in those 
least spiritual moments when you're in conflict and you're not dealing with it in a way that honors God at all, what's going on? You're grasping. Think of maybe your friendships. Maybe there's someone right now that you know, oh man, I need to, need to make things right with them. We're not right. It's a friendship, brother or sister in the Lord maybe even. I need to do, oh. What was happening in that? And, and what does God do with us in, in, in those moments where we're, where we're falling and failing in this area? You'll notice how Paul isn't content to talk about their identity and what it ought to be and just to leave it at that. It doesn't end with verse 10. Hey, those people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and that's that. Instead, look what Paul does. He turns the corner in a beautiful way. Look at verse 11. He describes all these things, from adultery to homosexuality to thieving to coveting to drunkenness to, to swindling. He covers this massive kind of just panoply of of sin, and then he says in verse 11, such were some of you. Isn't that beautiful? Such were some of you. There's hope. Such were some of you. God, God doesn't leave you there. Such were some of you. You can turn to Jesus and know what it is to be reconciled to him. God hasn't abandoned you. God isn't looking at you and saying, you're never going to make it with me. God isn't saying you're too far gone. God is not saying you've committed the sin that is now beyond the pale of my saving grace. Instead, God's saying, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you find yourself right now, come to me. My arms are open wide to you. And look at what he does. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Notice, all three of those verbs are passive. You did not wash yourself, you did not sanctify yourself, you did not justify yourself. Those are all passive. And what's beautiful in this phrase is there's ways in Greek to make things a a contrast, and there's ways in Greek to make things a vibrant, super strong contrast. This has three of those in a row, the super strong ones. So Paul is bringing forward this beautiful truth that you were this, but now, because of what God's done passively, you've received it passively, he's done it actively, you've received these blessings from him. You've been washed. That's the idea of something being so dirty, placed in water, placed in cleansing, and being brought out clean. The psalmist says, when you come to God for forgiveness and rest in his provision of salvation, though you were red like scarlet, you are made white as snow. You are sanctified. That's the idea of being taken and being set apart. 
that's back to what Paul's been arguing. Why are you acting like you're still in the world and part of the world when you've been taken out and set apart? You need to act and live like who you really are. We're back to that idea of become who you are. In Christ, you are new. You are these things. And then, but you were justified. That is God's judicial declaration where he looks at you, a repentant sinner, the gavel falls, divine, perfect justice rings out, not guilty. We're kind of like, but wait a minute. (laughs) If you knew me, you'd know I'm way guilty. I'm not even kind of guilty. I'm very thoroughly, fully guilty. And the Lord's like, I know. You are. You were. But my perfect, innocent, spotless, one-of-a-kind son died the death you deserve. My justice is perfect and fully satisfied. He willingly gave up his life for you. And now because of that, when I look at you, this perfectly just transaction has taken place. Your guilt transferred to his ledger of purity and goodness. His purity and goodness transferred to your ledger of guilt. And now I look at you and him. You are in him, and I see you with my perfect holy gaze, and you are truly, positionally, not guilty. Does that not cause your heart to leap for joy? Could there be a greater blessing given to sinners like us? It's passive. We receive it. It's the strongest contrast available in the Greek language, declaring that you were this and now you are in Jesus, washed, sanctified, and justified. That's why he goes on to clarify, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by your doing. It's by his doing. It's by his power. It's by his authority. It's by his mercy and compassion. It's by his justice and righteousness altogether Satisfied on the cross. And it's in the spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who brings this to pass. He's the one that takes us and when we're dead, he invades and brings us to life. He's the one that gives us eyes to see. He's the one that teaches us even in moments like this right now. We can't see anything about God. We can't walk with him. We can't know anything unless the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us opens our eyes and enables us. He brings us from death to life. And so you can see why Paul would say, why are you living as though none of those things are true? Don't. This wondrous transformation has taken place in all who have come to Jesus. Don't you know 
your status as saints. It means that you will judge the world because you've already won in Christ. It means when you take a brother or sister to court, you've already lost. And it means your new status in Christ is so different from what you used to be. You used to be non-heirs, but now you are heirs of the kingdom. So brothers and sisters, let's see this. Let's rejoice. Let's continue to repent, especially of living lives of grasping when we have all things in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths and we pray that you would help us to live out the gospel, to live out who we really are in you. For those who are here today who have never come to that place of trusting in you, Lord, we would pray that today, by your grace, there would just be an admission of being a sinner, of of living in a way in thought, action, or deed that doesn't honor you, and that they would receive your gift of salvation by trusting in you. Lord Jesus, you're risen. You are the Savior. Thank you for washing us. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for declaring us not guilty. Not because of us, but because of you. Amen.